Part Two, Chapter Nineteen of Burning Daylight by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Once again, on a rainy Sunday, weeks afterward, Daylight proposed to Dee Dee. As on the first time, he restrained himself until his hunger for her overwhelmed him and swept him away in his red automobile to Berkeley. He left the machine several blocks away and proceeded to the house on foot. But Dee Dee was out. The landlady's daughter told him, and added, on second thought, that she was out walking in the hills. Furthermore, the young lady directed him where Dee Dee's walk was most likely to extend. Daylight obeyed the girl's instructions, and soon the street he followed passed the last house, and itself ceased where began the first steep slopes of the open hills. The air was damp with the oncoming of rain, for the storm had not yet burst, though the rising wind proclaimed its imminence. As far as he could see, there was no sign of Dede on the smooth, grassy hills. To the right, dipping down into a hollow and rising again, was a large, fully grown eucalyptus grove. Here all was noise and movement, the lofty, slender-trunked trees swaying back and forth in the wind and clashing their branches together. In the squalls, above all the minor noises of creaking and groaning, arose a deep thrumming note, as of a mighty harp. Knowing Dede as he did, Daylight was confident that he would find her somewhere in this grove, where the storm effects were so pronounced. And find her he did, across the hollow and on the exposed crest of the opposing slope where the gale smote its fiercest blows. There was something monotonous, though not tiresome, about the way Daylight proposed. Guiltless of diplomacy, subterfuge, he was as direct and gusty as the gale itself. He had time neither for greeting nor apology. It's the same old thing, he said. I want you, and I've come for you. You've just got to have me, Dee Dee, for the more I think about it, the more certain I am that you've got a sneaking liking for me that's something more than just ordinary liking, and you don't dast say that it isn't, now dast you? He had shaken hands with her at the moment he began speaking, and he had continued to hold her hand. Now, when she did not answer, she felt a light but firmly insistent pressure, as of his drawing her to him. Involuntarily, she half yielded to him, her desire for the moment stronger than her will. Then suddenly she drew herself away, though permitting her hand still to remain in his. "'You sure ain't afraid of me?' he asked, with quick compunction. "'No,' she smiled woefully. Not of you, but of myself. You haven't taken my dare, he urged, under this encouragement. Please, please, she begged. We can never marry, so don't let us discuss it. Then I copper your bet to lose. He was almost gay now, for success was coming faster than his fondest imagining. She liked him, without a doubt, and without a doubt she liked him well enough to let him hold her hand well enough 
to be not repelled by the nearness of him. She shook her head. No, it's impossible. You would lose your bet. For the first time a dark suspicion crossed Daylight's mind, a clue that explained everything. Say, you ain't been let in for some one of these secret marriages, have you? The consternation in his voice and on his face was too much for her, and her laugh rang out, merry and spontaneous, as a burst of joy from the throat of a bird. Daylight knew his answer, and, vexed with himself, decided that action was more efficient than speech. So he stepped between her and the wind, and drew her so that she stood close in the shelter of him. An unusually stiff squall blew about them and thrummed overhead in the treetops, and both paused to listen. A shower of flying leaves enveloped them, and hard on the heel of the wind came driving drops of rain. He looked down on her, and on her hair, wind-blown about her face. And because of her closeness to him, and of a fresher and more poignant realization of what she meant to him, he trembled so that she was aware of it in the hand that held hers. She suddenly leaned against him, bowing her head until it rested lightly upon his breast. And so they stood while another squall, with flying leaves and scattered drops of rain, rattled past. With equal suddenness, she lifted her head and looked at him. Do you know, she said, I prayed last night about you. I prayed that you would fail, that you would lose everything, everything. Daylight stared his amazement at this cryptic utterance. That sure beats me. I always said I got out of my depth with women, and you've got me out of my depth now. Why you want me to lose everything, seeing as you like me? I never said so. You didn't dast say you didn't. So, as I was saying, liking me, why do you want me to go broke as clean beyond my simple understanding? It's right in line with that other puzzler of yours. The more you like me, the less you want to marry me, one. Well, you've just got to explain, that's all. His arms went around her, and he held her closely, and this time she did not resist. Her head was bowed, and he had not seen her face, yet he had a premonition that she was crying. He had learned the virtue of silence, and he waited her will in the matter. Things had come to such a pass that she was bound to tell him something now. Of that he was confident. I am not romantic, she began, again looking at him as she spoke. It might be better for me if I were. Then I could make a fool of myself and be unhappy for the rest of my life. But my abominable common sense prevents, and that doesn't make me a bit happier, either. I'm still out of my depth and swimming feeble, Daylight said, after waiting vainly for her to go on. You've got to show me, and you ain't shown me yet. Your common sense in praying that I'd go broke is all up in the air to me. Little woman, I just love you mighty hard, and I want you to marry me. That's straight and simple, and right off the bat. Will you marry me? She shook her head slowly, and then, as she talked, seemed to grow angry, sadly angry, 
and Daylight knew that this anger was against him. Then let me explain, and just as straight and simply as you have asked. She paused, as if casting about for a beginning. You are honest and straightforward. Do you want me to be honest and straightforward, as a woman is not supposed to be? To tell you things that will hurt you, to make confessions that ought to shame me, to behave in what many men would think was an unwomanly manner. The arm around her shoulder pressed encouragement, but he did not speak. I would dearly like to marry you, but I'm afraid. I am proud and humble at the same time that a man like you should care for me. But you have too much money. That's where my abominable common sense steps in. Even if we did marry, you could never be my man, my lover, and my husband. You would be your money's man. I know I'm a foolish woman, but I want a man for myself. You would not be free for me. Your money possesses you, taking your time, your thoughts, your energy, everything, bidding you go here, go there, do this, do that. Don't you see? Perhaps it's pure silliness, but I feel that I can love much, give much, give all, and in return, though, I don't want all, I want much, and I want much more than your money would permit you to give me. And your money destroys you. It makes you less and less nice. I am not ashamed to say that I love you, because I shall never marry you. And I loved you much when I did not know you at all, when you first came down from Alaska and I first went into the office. You were my hero. You were the burning daylight of the gold diggings, the daring traveler and miner, and you looked it. I don't see how any woman could have looked at you without loving you then. But you don't look it now. Please, please, forgive me for hurting you. You wanted straight talk, and I am giving it to you. All these last years you have been living unnaturally. You, a man of the open, have been cooping yourself up in the cities with all that that means. You are not the same man at all, and your money is destroying you. You are becoming something different, something not so healthy, not so clean, not so nice. Your money and your way of life are doing it. You know it. You haven't the same body now that you had then. You are putting on flesh, and it is not healthy flesh. You are kind and genial with me, I know. But you are not kind and genial to all the world as you were then. You have become harsh and cruel, and I know. Remember, I have studied you six days a week, month after month, year after year, and I know more about the most insignificant parts of you than you know of all of me. The cruelty is not only in your heart and thought, but it is there in your face. It has put its lines there. I have watched them come and grow. Your money and the life it compels you to lead have done all this. You are being brutalized and degraded, and this process can only go on and on until you are hopelessly destroyed. He attempted to interrupt, but she stopped him, herself breathless and her voice trembling. No, no, let me finish utterly. I have done nothing but think, 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 all these months, ever since you came riding with me, 
and now that I have begun to speak, I am going to speak all that I have in me. I do love you, but I cannot marry you and destroy love. You are growing into a thing that I must, in the end, despise. You can't help it. More than you can possibly love me, do you love this business game? This business, and it's all perfectly useless so far as you are concerned, claims all of you. I sometimes think it would be easier to share you equitably with another woman than to share you with this business. I might have half of you, at any rate, but this business would claim not half of you, but nine-tenths of you, or ninety-nine-hundredths. Remember, the meaning of marriage to me is not to get a man's money to spend. I want the man. You say you want me, and suppose I consented, but gave you only one one-hundredth part of me. Suppose there was something else in my life that took the other ninety-nine parts, and furthermore, that ruined my figure, that put pouches under my eyes and crow's feet in the corners, that made me unbeautiful to look upon, and that made my spirit unbeautiful. Would you be satisfied with that one-hundredth part of me? Yet that is all you are offering me of yourself. Do you wonder that I won't marry you, that I can't? Daylight waited to see if she were quite done, and she went on again. It isn't that I'm selfish. After all, love is giving, not receiving. But I see so clearly that all my giving could not do you any good. You are like a sick man. You don't play business like other men. You play at heart, and, and all of you. No matter what you believe and intended, a wife would be only a brief diversion. There is that magnificent Bob eating his head off in the stable. You would buy me a beautiful mansion and leave me in it to yawn my head off, or cry my eyes out because of my helplessness and inability to save you. This disease of business would be corroding you and marring you all the time. You play it as you have played everything else, as in Alaska you played the life of the trail. Nobody could be permitted to travel as fast and far as you to work as hard, or to endure as much. You hold back nothing. You put all you've got into whatever you are doing. Limit is the sky, he grunted, grim affirmation. But if you would only play the lover-husband that way. Her voice faltered and stopped, and a blush showed in her wet cheeks as her eyes fell before his. And now I won't say another word, she added. I've delivered a whole sermon. She rested now, frankly and fairly, in the shelter of his arms, and both were oblivious to the gale that rushed past them in quicker and stronger blasts. The big downpour of rain had not yet come, but the mist-like squalls were more frequent. Daylight was openly perplexed, and he was still perplexed when he began to speak. I'm stumped. I'm up a tree. I'm clean flabbergasted, Miss Mason, or Dee Dee, because I love to call you that name. I'm free to confess there's a mighty big heap in what you say. As I understand it, your conclusion is that you'd marry me if I hadn't a cent and I wasn't getting fat. 
No, no, I'm not joking. I acknowledge the corn, and that's just my way of boiling the matter down and summing it up. If I hadn't a cent, and if I was living a healthy life, with all the time in the world to love you and be your husband, instead of being a wash to my back teeth in business and all the rest, why, you'd marry me. That's all as clear as print, and you're correcter than I ever guessed before. You've sure opened my eyes a few. But I'm stuck. What can I do? My business has sure roped, thrown, and branded me. I'm tied, hand and foot, and I can't get up and meander over green pastures. I'm like the man that got the bear by the tail. I can't let go, and I want you, and I've got to let go to get you. I don't know what to do, but something's sure got to happen. I can't lose you. I just can't, and I'm not going to. Why, you're running business a close second right now. Business never kept me awake nights. You've left me no argument. I know I'm not the same man that came from Alaska. I couldn't hit the trail with the dogs as I did in them days. I'm soft in my muscles, and my mind's gone hard. I used to respect men. I despise them now. You see, I've spent all my life in the open, and I reckon I'm an open-air man. Well, I've got the prettiest little ranch you ever laid eyes on, up in Glen Ellen. That's where I got stuck for that brickyard. You recollect handling the correspondence? I only laid eyes on the ranch that one time, and I so fell in love with it that I bought it there and then. I just rode around the hills and was happy as a kid out of school. I'd be a better man living in the country. The city doesn't make me better. You're plumb right there. I know it. But suppose your prayer should be answered, and I'd go clean broke and have to work for day's wages. She did not answer, though all the body of her seemed to urge consent. Suppose I had nothing left but that little ranch and was satisfied to grow a few chickens and scratch a living somehow. Would you marry me then, Dee Dee? Why, we'd be together all the time, she cried. But I'd have to be out plowing once in a while, he warned, or driving to town to get the grub. But there wouldn't be the office at any rate, and no man to see, and men to see without end. But it's all foolish and impossible, and we'll have to be starting back now if we're to escape the rain. Then was the moment among the trees where they began the descent of the hill, that daylight might have drawn her closely to him and kissed her once. But he was too perplexed with the new thoughts she had put into his head to take advantage of the situation. He merely caught her by the arm and helped her over the rougher footing. It's darn pretty country up there at Glen Ellen, he said meditatively. I wish you could see it. At the edge of the grove, he suggested, that it might be better for them to part there. It's your neighborhood, and folks is liable to talk. But she insisted that he accompany her as far as the house. I can't ask you in, she said, extending her hand at the foot of the steps. The wind was humming wildly in sharply recurrent gusts, but still the rain held off. Do you know, he said, taking it by and large, 
It's the happiest day of my life. He took off his hat, and the wind rippled and twisted his black hair as he went on solemnly. And I'm sure grateful to God, or whoever, or whatever, is responsible for you being on this earth. For you do like me heaps. It's been my joy to hear you say so today. It's... He left the thought arrested. And his face assumed the familiar, whimsical expression as he murmured, Dee 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 Dee, we've just got to get married. It's the only way, and trust the luck, for it's coming out all right. But the tears were threatening to rise in her eyes again, and she shook her head and turned and went up the steps. End of Part 2 Chapter 19